In keeping with the Thanksgiving theme this weekend, I made a decision to try to explore a couple of ideas regarding the, the, the theme of being grateful and being thankful. And so it led, led me into a little bit of reflection and a little bit of study. So our, our study this morning is going to be a compilation of some of the thoughts that I've collected over the week, reflecting on the themes of gratefulness, thanksgiving, and all the things that are associated with this season of the year, which is highly appropriate, very highly appropriate, and shouldn't be something that is neglected in our spiritual lives. I've entitled the lesson, We're Not Ten Cleansed, Where Are the Nine? This is taken from the Gospel of St. Luke. So we're going to begin our study today in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be looking at a couple of other places in Scripture. Without any further ado, I'd invite you now to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter number 17, and we'll have a look at a story from Scripture. We'll see that we'll read the narrative together of Jesus and some gentlemen for whom he did something very wonderful. All right, shall we open up our Bibles now? We're in Luke chapter 17. We're going to begin at verse 11, and we're going to end at verse 19. I would invite everyone to be standing in honor of the reading of our primary text here in the Word of God. I'd invite you to stand, if you would please, be so kind. And we'll read together Luke chapter 17. Reading together now, Luke 17, from the Word of God, verses 11 through 19. Shall we read together in unison, all together? And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices, said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we have a, a marvelous story here in which Jesus healed ten lepers. There's many little details of this story that we could explore. Some of them were from Samaria, some were from Galilee. And it so happens that the one that turned around to give thanks happened to be a Samaritan. Now, when Jesus did this healing, it, 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 the remarkable feature of the healing and the aftermath is the fact that nine did not express gratefulness and only one did. But before we kind of look at that, there's something that is also rather interesting that's worthy of mentioning. You know, Jesus' instructions emphasized the validity of God's law. 
Did you notice that? If you look in verse number 14, it tells us that when Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, when he told them to go show yourself to the priests, that meant something to them in that culture, in that society. For you and I, that might not mean something. One, the first reaction is, well, why would I show myself to the priest? What's, what's, that, what's going on? What's that all about? Well, it turns out that in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, we have a number of chapters that describe the, the function of the priests and the Levites. And the priests actually functioned as a, um, a mechanism for maintaining health within a community. And if you care to, to look, I won't read it, but if you care to look in Leviticus 13, there is a very long and extensive discussion over giving the priests instructions as to how they're going to examine a person who has some sort of infection, some sort of infectious disease, some sort of skin affliction, and to examine the flesh, whether the flesh is raw or whether the flesh is smooth. And it goes into all these descriptions, telling the priest, if you see this, then you must say to them, go isolate yourself for seven days. Or if you see this, then they're clean. They're not sick anymore. Or various and sundry things. So there's a lot of detailed instructions. And a lot of us, a lot of the time, we just kind of breeze over that when we read, read through Scripture. And it, it might seem a little dry and dusty and a little bit boring. But it's all there for a purpose. And if you care to look at Leviticus 13, you'll see that the priests were the keepers of public sanitation and health. And they had rules in, in, from which they governed. And so when Jesus said, go show yourself to the priests, they knew what that meant. They knew that that meant that they were supposed to present themselves to the priest as a candidate for someone who was now cleansed. They wouldn't have gone if they didn't think that maybe I might be cleansed of my illness. So the mere, the, the instruction to go to the priest was the key phrase, the key word, the key uh, a, a bit of thinking here that, that Jesus gave them to help them understand uh, that, that he was going to heal them. Now, of course, we're not really here to discuss the healing this morning. We're not really here to analyze the functions of the priests and the, or the disease of leprosy or any of that. Really, what we're looking here at today is the idea of gratefulness. And here's a central thought that I really want to leave you with. I want to begin with this, and we're probably going to come back to it again and again. <clears throat> when Jesus healed the ten lepers, and only one paused to turn around and offer thanksgiving, Jesus asked that question, where are the nine? Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? You see, we discover that gratefulness is a minority characteristic. And I'd like you to really let that settle into your mind. Gratefulness is a minority characteristic. Most of us are not grateful people. You say, how do you know? Well, I don't know about you particularly. I don't know what's in your brain or in your heart or what you spend your time thinking about. 
But I think I can build a pretty good case for this regarding people from, the, from Scripture. And I think we don't have, when we really look through this, we can perceive, generally speaking, that that is a true statement. Most people you know, most people probably in this room, are probably not particularly grateful people. Whether or not you are one of those minority grateful people, I do not know. Now, I know that as I prepared this lesson this week, I felt rather chastised and humbled. And the reason is because as I looked at some of the characteristics of a grateful person, I realized I didn't really have very many of them. And I looked at the activities of a grateful person. I realized I don't do very well. So my exhortation to you this morning is don't use me as an example, but listen to what I say and see what you can do with your own life. Because most of us really are not very good or very consistent at being grateful people. Most of us would have responded the way the nine did. Most of us would have said, well, he told me to go see the priest, so off I go to the priest. He didn't tell me to turn around and give thanks. Yet, Jesus was disappointed when only one did. Somehow, the other nine should have known that it was right and appropriate to pause on the way to the priest and offer some sort of indication of thanksgiving and gratefulness. But nine hastened on. Why did they simply hasten on to the priest and only one paused when he realized that he was healed? Well, we're, there's a reason for it, I believe. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to answer that question a little bit better. All right, but to really press this point, Israelites in general do not have a good track record of being grateful people. And so let's just look at the book of Numbers for our, our, our next area of example. Uh, we can know from the book of Numbers and from the stories of Scripture in history that after leaving Egypt, the children of Israel repeatedly showed that they were not a grateful people. Repeatedly showed. Now, I, I invite you now, please, turn with me to the book of Numbers. We'll look at a couple of passages. We'll start in Numbers chapter number 11. We're going to go to Numbers 11, and I'd like you to turn there with me. <coughs> and let's consider a couple of items. To start with now, recall the children of Israel and their circumstances. By the time we get to the book of Numbers here, the children of Israel had been delivered from Pharaoh, who had miraculously smitten the Egyptian nation with ten plagues including the death of the firstborn, even Pharaoh's own eldest. The children of Israel had been delivered from Pharaoh's army by the crossing of the Red Sea, one of the most stunning and magnificent miracles and deliverances in Scripture, perhaps in all of human history. An event so shocking, so unbelievable, that you, would just, you just can hardly imagine the titanic nature of an army swallowed up in water while a ragtag bunch of refugees skate on through and are delivered. The children of Israel by this time had received the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel were now on their way to the land of promise. 
having been recipients of wonderful, excellent, mighty, tremendous works of God. And now we find, after all of that, in Numbers chapter 11, we find a little story. It turns out that the children of Israel were being miraculously provided with food in the wilderness. Manna. We all know the story of manna. Miraculously falls every through in the night hours. They gather it up in the early morning hours before the sun becomes hot. And they have food every single day. The Bible describes it as bread. It says it has a, the Bible describes it as having a little bit of a sweet flavor, a little bit like honey. So it's probably pretty good. Probably tastes pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yet, we find the children of Israel grow weary of manna. And instead of focusing on the deliverance they've received and the blessings that they have each day, they complain. So in Numbers chapter 11, let's begin reading at verse number 4. I'm going to read for you and I'd like you to follow along. Are you ready? Let's read about the children of Israel in the wilderness. It says, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? By the, the word flesh means some sort of meat. What we, you and I would call meat. And then they continue to complain, the children of Israel. Mixed multitude as well, but the children of Israel is with them. And you'll notice in verse 4. So we can't blame this on the mixed multitude. Don't blame this on the mixed multitude. Don't make that mistake. It says then, We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics. Oh, all that good food. Great gardens. A lot of fish from the river. It was a great life that we had there in Egypt. Oh, was it really? Was it really a great life? You, have, you were able to eat fish and garlic and melon. And all you had to do in exchange was give up your firstborn son to be cast into the river to the crocodiles. Was it really that great? Well, they, they have a selective memory here. Verse 6. But now our soul is dried away, and there's nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed, the color was as the color of delium. And the people went about and gathered it, ground it in mills, beat it into mortar, baked it in pans, made cakes, and the taste of it was the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell upon it. So it's just reminding us, the author in describing this narrative is reminding us what the manna was like. Sounds pretty good. I'd like to give it a try. How many of you would say, yeah, I'd like to give manna a little bit of a try. Sounds all right. I, I think it'd probably be pretty good. Carry on in verse 10. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses was also displeased. And Moses <laughs> has got his own set of burdens here. Verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? Why, why are you giving me these troubles? Wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Why did you give me these, this bunch of complainers to lead? Verse 12. Have I conceived this people? 
Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father bearing a sucking child unto the land which thou swearest to thy thy fathers? Do I, is it, is it, am I responsible for these people? Do I have to really be responsible? This is, this is how Moses feels. They're such an ungrateful, grumbly bunch. Verse 13. When should I have flesh to give to all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may give us meat. We want meat. Now, if we cut to the end of the story, we'll drop, leave portions of this chapter. If we drop down to verse 31, eventually God gives them some meat. Verse 31, There went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quails from the sea, and let them fall by the camp, as it were a day's journey on this side, and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. Quails piling up two cubits deep. That's quite a mountain of flesh. It's a little hard to visualize all of this, but it tells us that nearby the camp, they discovered that a wind blew in this unbelievably massive quantity of quails, and they piled up dead on the ground. Or they were almost dead. It doesn't, we'd have to really kind of read into it a little bit. But it says, tells us in verse 32, The people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day. They gathered the quails. He that gathered least gathered ten homers, which is a, like a... Like a pile big everybody just had more quail than you could carry is what it's trying to tell us and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp and while the flesh was yet between their teeth air was chewed before they even got their first meal down it says the wrath of the lord was kindled against the people and the lord smote the people with a great plague and he called the name of that place kibroth hatateavah because they buried the people there that lusted So they got sick and they died. Many died. So they complained. And God sent them quail. You know what's ironic though about all of this? This was repeated in a similar fashion in Numbers chapter 21. You'd say, well, I guess the children of Israel learned their lesson. But they didn't learn it very well. If you flip over a few pages, let's go to another story in the book of Numbers. A little later on. They had to learn it again. Numbers chapter 21. Let's read beginning at verse 4. Now the children of Israel are wandering around here again. And we find them complaining in the same respect. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses... Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this light bread. Well, it was bread. They were just tired of it. We're getting tired of the manna. God's response, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. And you know the rest of the story. We have the story of the brass serpent, which I won't continue to read. But the point is, the children of Israel, after having all received all the great benefits of being delivered out of slavery in Egypt and seeing the great miracles of God in crossing the Red Sea and receiving a daily miracle of manna, soon became ungrateful and complained. 
And that happened not just once, but twice. Twice. So, the lesson that can be drawn from this is there's something that works in human nature. We see this now among the children of Israel in the Old Testament. We saw it with the ten lepers. And that is this. It is easy to, be, to cease being grateful. It is easy to cease being grateful for that which you used to be. That is to say, something you used to be grateful for, you stop being grateful for it. Again, I would argue that most of us not, are not really particularly grateful people. Why is that true? If it is true, and I think it is, why is it so difficult in human nature? Why does it need such constant attention to cultivate a spirit of gratefulness? What kind of a sin is a lack of gratefulness? A lack of gratefulness. What kind of a sin is that? Let's explore that a little bit. Well, I believe we could say it's a sin of omission. Lack of gratefulness is a sin of omission. And the root of the word omission is omit, to leave something out. It's, it's, it's failing to do something that ought to be done. There's many examples of sins of omission or errors of omission. Occasionally, with youngsters at school, they have spelling words that they're copying or maybe a spelling test, and they forget to cross a T. Well, I have to mark it wrong. You say, well, it's just a failure of omission. Yes, but an uncrossed T is an L. <laughs> it is an error. It is wrong. I won't call it a sin, but it's a mistake. Life is filled with circumstances like that. Usually much more serious than failing to cross a T. But that's what a lack of gratefulness is. It's a sin of omission. It's, 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 it's not performing, not doing, not acting, not saying, not all these things that ought to be done don't get done. And thus, it is a great lack. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sin of omission. All right. What does that mean then? And, and, and how do we understand a sin of omission? Well, a sin of omission, <coughs> rather than a thou shalt not... We discover that true gratefulness is more like, remember to do this. Rather than thou shalt not, true gratefulness is more like, you've got to remember to do this. Now you'll note that of the Ten Commandments that we have over here to my left, that you can run your eye upon, only two of them are phrased in this manner. Only two of the Ten Commandments are structured in the manner that I'm describing here. Eight of them are thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Two of them, however, are structured in a way that is exhorting us to not commit the sin of omission. Don't make the mistake of omitting that which you ought to perform. So we have our fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Failing to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy would be a sin of omission. And then, of course, we have 
Commandment five, honor thy father and thy mother. Failing to honor your father and mother is a sin of omission. Now, those that are structured the other way around, the other eight, in many respects, are a little easier for us to wrap our mind around. A lot of them are rather, are a bit more objective. Some of them are really simple. Thou shalt not steal. It's, it's not particularly complicated to understand that one. It's pretty objective. Pretty straightforward. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Pretty, pretty objective. There's a few subtleties, I suppose. But it turns out that those that are structured in this way, that are dealing with sins of omission, are a little harder to get your mind wrapped around. And regarding gratefulness, I might take a minute and just think what the Bible really doesn't tell us about gratefulness and how it's to proceed. Everyone's going to agree that having a grateful attitude and, and exercising gratefulness is a right and proper thing we ought to do. And most of us are going to say, I think I do pretty well in that area. But in fact, the Bible doesn't give us everything maybe that we might like to know about it or what we ought to know. We really have to fill in the gaps on our own in many respects. For example, regarding gratefulness, to whom should you be grateful? Well, there's a few obvious that come to your mind. You say, well, I should be grateful to God. I suppose I should be grateful to my parents if you're a young person. Although, I don't think young people do very well in that area. I don't think adults do very well in that area. There's a few that jump out and say I ought to be grateful to this or that person. We don't know how often. Does the Bible tell us how often we ought to be grateful how often should we express our gratitude? Once a year at Thanksgiving? Well, that's it's a, it's a great holiday. It's not exactly a biblical holiday, but it's obviously consistent with Bible precepts. So there's no reason for us not to enjoy in, in a happy way and emphasize the themes of Thanksgiving. At other times, we can see it in Scripture. We can say, well, there's the festival of ingathering in the autumn of the year. That's probably a time for gratefulness. But there's just not a lot of information about how often we ought to express our gratefulness. On what occasions? Are there certain special occasions? Well, we have to kind of be intuitive there. There's probably a few obvious times you ought to express gratefulness perhaps to your spouse on their birthday or an anniversary or other special occasions, I suppose. Is that really enough? In what manner then? So if you're going to express gratefulness, how is it to be expressed? If you're going to be grateful, how do you show it? There's another sin of omission that's not one of the Ten Commandments, but it maybe ought to be. <laughs> In Ephesians 5, we find information regarding husbands and wives. And it repeatedly tells the husband that he ought to love his wife. So, husbands loving their wives, our duty 
as a husband to love his wife is a little bit like our duty to be grateful. You see, a husband, if he's instructed and he says, well, I know I'm supposed to love my wife. Well, I do love my wife. She knows I love her. I tell her every year. I don't, shouldn't have to tell her all the time. What kind of a fragile little thing is she? I'm supposed to be blathering it out three times a day, five times a day? Am I supposed to be some sort of a, you know, muttering fool, drooling over my wife constantly? Well, the Bible tells us that we should love our wives. It doesn't tell us how often, how when, doesn't give us a lot of information. We've got we to gotta work all that out. So the, in many respects, gratefulness is like that. We have to work it out. We have to figure out a strategy. We have to, we have to reflect on how we can, we can be grateful to whom and when and where and how it's to be expressed. We've got to work all of that out. The same way a husband has to work out how he's going to love his wife. Now you see, one of the ironies in going back to this parallel comparing gratefulness as a possible sin of omission and a husband loving his wife as a possible sin of omission and comparing those two, you might think about the relationship of a husband and wife as it often is expressed. So typically, men are going to generally think they're doing pretty well in this area. Most husbands, if you ask them, do you love your wife? They're going to say, well, sure, I love my wife. Are you doing a good job of loving your wife? Well, yeah, I think I'm doing a good job of loving my wife. And yet, ironically, wives often really don't agree. And that's not, I'm not making that up. That, that, I, believe, I believe anyone who spent any time dealing with what marriage and marriage counseling in dealing with marriage in general and reading and studying marriage, and I've spent more time on that than I care to spend. <laughs> it's a generally true pattern that husbands think they're doing a pretty good job and wife thinks there's a lot of, there's a lot of room for improvement. A lot of room for improvement. Not a little room for improvement, but a lot of room for improvement. And so you have a gap the husband says, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'll give myself a B plus, and maybe an A minus. And the wife says, I'd have to give him a C minus or a D. There's a gap. There's a gap of perception. There's this, this gap of this omission gap is what it can be called. This is the omission gap. And that's the way sins of omission work. There's a gap between what you believe you're doing and what's actually happening. And what's, what's actually being perceived at the other end. This omission gap. You think you're doing a pretty good job. But at the other end, those that are on the receiving end, they're not going to be as generous in their uh, grade regarding your performance. And this explains why most of us really aren't grateful people. We judge ourselves too easily, too lightly. 
We judge ourselves by intent, not by action. Whereas others may just judge us by action. So, for example, if, uh, if I have a friend and, you know, I think maybe this is a close friend and I ought to do something for them, I think about doing something for them, I plan on doing something for them, I intend on doing something for them, I intend on it, but somehow it doesn't happen. I'm thinking, oh well, I meant to. My intentions were good. On the other end, he can't give me a good report based on my intentions because he doesn't know my intentions. He doesn't know that I was thinking about it. He doesn't know that I was planning on it. He doesn't know that I was intending to do it. He doesn't know that it might have happened except something got in the way. He doesn't know any of that. He thinks I completely forgot and it's unimportant. We judge ourselves so easily. We judge ourselves on what we think and what we feel and what we intend, whereas everyone else is compelled to judge us by a more objective standard. And that more objective standard is really a more accurate standard rather than just what is happening within our mind, within our brain. You know, ungratefulness... It can be dangerous in another respect. I'd like you to turn with me for a, and then have another passage. We're going to analyze briefly here. Go with me to the gospel, excuse me, the epistle of Romans. <coughs> excuse me, Romans chapter number one. Romans chapter one is a pretty interesting passage. I'm going to start at verse number 21. I'm going to read on down a bit. Please follow along. Romans chapter number 1, beginning at verse 21. So there's a group of people here now in Romans 1, 21. Begins to describe these people. Are you ready? Verse 21 of Romans 1. Let's look at the description of this group of people. Are you ready? Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful Huh. Look at that closely. It says they were not thankful. Do you see that? But it also says, before that, back up. It says, because that, when they knew God, these people in verse 21 knew God. It says they knew God, but they did not glorify Him, and they were not thankful. So let that settle into your head. This is the beginning point. So what we're looking at here in Romans chapter 1, and I'm at the bottom of page 1 in the outline, we're looking at a pathology. There's a pathology of sin that unfolds in this chapter. And I'd like to suggest that ungratefulness begins a pathology that can lead to outrageous sin. Now, when we read in verse 21, we haven't encountered outrageous ungodliness and sin. But we're going to. Let's keep reading now. Verse 21, please note our beginning point. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. 
but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God gave them up unto uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves." who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat." And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, this is a rather famous pathology of sin, describing people who made an error in the beginning, but as with the passing of time, move forward to some really outrageous sins. And in this case, it was homosexuality, lesbianism, some of the most grievous sins described in Scripture. Things that no self-respecting Christian would ever contemplate. Yet, it happens. Maybe you know someone that is a victim of this pathology. Maybe I shouldn't say victim. Maybe I should... Describe it another way, in which a, they, they, they choose this pathway. And the, the, the choice is made in verse 21, where we began. Because it tells us that they knew God. Yet they refused, they chose not to glorify Him, and were not thankful. So the small omission of thankfulness, or what appears to be a small omission begins a chain reaction, a row of dominoes, shall we say. Now, if we look at verse 21 and 22, we see that it begins with a focus that shifts from God's goodness to your own sense of worth. Your own sense of worth. Rather than keeping the focus on God and the goodness and grace of God, you begin to consider yourself to be a person of worth and merit. That's verses 21 and 22. They're foolish, and they profess themselves to be wise. Then we discover that self-focus then turns into sundry selfish desires in verse 24. This self-absorption, the self-focus, the self-congratulation or just the self-absorption period of what's happening in my life results in unnatural desires arising. And then finally, those desires grow, and by the time we get to verse 26, to what are described as vile and unnatural affections. Not only un unnatural, they're vile, they're disgusting. They're filthy. So the sin of ungratefulness 
at least has the potential to be rather devastating. All right. Now, on the back of the outline, I've created a, a little chart. I didn't make these up. This is, these are things that I've gleaned from other people who've been thinking in this area. And what we've got here are five leading characteristics of an ungrateful person. Now, this chart is meant for you to take home and to think about and reflect on and to fill it out. But before you look at the columns that say often, sometimes, or rarely, just leave those blank for the moment. Let's go to the left side, A through E, and let's fill in the blanks of these questions. All right? Let's fill in the blanks. Point A, are you guys ready? Do other people say that you fail to express happiness for their good news? Let me read that again. Do other people say that you fail to express happiness for their good news? Well, how would you know what other people say about you? How would you know? Well, you're going to have to ask them. You aren't probably going to know if you do well in this area unless you ask those around you, do I do well in this area? When good, something good happens to someone else, do I rejoice with them the way I ought? Or do I ignore it? Or do I have some other unchristian response? Some other selfish response? The second one. Do other people say that you are critical and a frequent fault finder? Well, how would you know? Well, you'll have to ask other people. Am I critical? Am I a fault finder? Perhaps someone has already told you that. But you're going to need to get some input. And you say, well, why can't I just evaluate myself? Because you won't do it right. That's the answer. The answer is you'll be too easy on yourself. You'll say, of course I'm not a critical, fault-finding person. I mean, of course, of course I'm not a critical person. I only point out things that need to be pointed out once in a while. I wouldn't characterize myself as a critical fault finder. Do other people say, the third one, do other people say that you take them for granted? Well, I don't know. You'll have to, you'll have to ask them. The next one, do others say that you blame them for troubles in your own life? Do other people say that, when, that you blame them for troubles in your own life? When something is difficult in your life, do you shift the blame to someone else? Well, that's only because of what you said or what you did or what you're failing. You'll have to ask if people around you would perceive this failing in your, in your life. And last, do others say that you are a difficult person to work with? Well, I'm not a difficult person to work with. I'm known for being easygoing. Flexible. I am a flexible, easygoing person. Really. All right. Now, if you care to and if you have an opportunity to, you can then fill out if you're often or sometimes or rarely. Now, if you come up with a whole bunch of rarely, that's pretty good. Then you're doing, you're doing well. If your friends and your neighbors and your 
brothers and sisters and your spouse and your, your you know, people close to you, your children, your, the people that live with you, if they say, oh yeah, we can give pretty good marks here. Rarely, 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 rarely. Five rarelys. Well, that's good. Then this lesson isn't for you. <laughs> but if you get a lot of oftens and sometimes, <laughs> then this is a time for you to be thinking about how you can improve in this area of life. So that you can learn to be a more grateful person. Let's go to the next section here. Practical tips to cultivate a grateful spirit. How can we cultivate a grateful spirit? But I'd like to begin with one that should be intuitively obvious. We can take this from Proverbs chapter number 3. Regretfully, life experience suggests that it is not intuitively obvious. So I'm going to read Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. Are you ready for this? This is dealing with money. Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. Verse 28, key verse. Say not unto thy neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I will give when thou hast it by thee. So here's our first practical tip. Pay that back which you owe as soon as possible. Pay back that which you owe as soon as possible. Now, I'm, we're not particularly worried about a loan you have at the bank because you've got a schedule. And they have a mechanism to force you to pay on schedule, or you'll suffer the consequences. So most of us do okay in that area. But many, remarkably, even among Christian brothers, do not do all that well when it comes to a loan among friends and neighbors. And that's a pitiful situation. Pay, that, pay back that which you owe as soon as possible. If you have borrowed $1,000 from a neighbor and you have the ability to pay them back after a month, then do so. Don't string it out for two or three or four months. Why? They are doing you a favor. They have done you a favor. And, and, and many people don't perceive this regarding financial loans between brothers. How much of a favor they're doing. The reality is, they are giving you of something of value that they could use for something else. The thousand dollars you have borrowed, it's not as if they couldn't do something with that thousand dollars. But they're letting you use it. And if you linger in repaying, you are withholding from them the ability to use their own resources for their own purposes. Does that make sense? If you borrow a tool, get the job done and get the tool back. If you linger, you have effect, effectively taken that tool out of their ability to use. And they might need it. Now, this might seem like a small thing, but over the years, I've observed this to be a rather... Frequent small problem. 
Now, once you pay them back, don't think that you're now even. You're not even. You're still not even. You're, you still owe them a favor. It's not like you're doing them a favor and paying them back. They still have done you a favor. You have still used their $1,000 for however many weeks or months that they did not have access to it. You have still used that big power tool for however many days or weeks that they did not have access to it. So, the first thing to do, if you want to be a grateful person, pay back that which you owe as soon as possible. And then, and then, see, you're not done. Look for a way to return the favor. Then you've got to look for a way to return the favor. If you want to be even, you've got to turn the tables now. Now you owe them a favor. They have done you a favor. You didn't do a favor in paying them back. All you did was what you were obligated to do. And you should feel compelled to do that as rapidly as you can. That's what it tells us in Proverbs 3.28. All right. Now, so much for finances and tools and things of, of a practical nature. Let's consider something a little more, let's, we'll call this spiritual. All right. <clears throat> this, now, the, the verse I'm alluding to, I'm taking this principle from... Daniel chapter number 6, verse 10. So we don't have time to go through the story of Daniel here. But you might recall, in brief, I'll just summarize. Daniel was a godly man. He had a habit of praying. His enemies wished to find a way to destroy him. And so they persuaded the king to pass a law that says nobody can pray except to the king, essentially. And they passed this law intentionally to entrap Daniel because they knew that Daniel was a man of great prayer. And Daniel would most likely continue to pray as before. And so we discover that, that yes, that, that's exactly what happened. Daniel was, was trapped. And in verse 10 of chapter 6, it describes this in Daniel's response. It says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed... He went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Now consider this. Daniel prayed and gave thanks as he did aforetime. Read that again. Daniel prayed and gave thanks as he did before. This tells us about the content of his prayer under these circumstances. Daniel did not pray at that moment to be delivered from the trap. Daniel did not change the focus of his prayers based on what the text tells us. You might think, well, surely he altered his prayer to pray for deliverance for himself. It does not say he did. It says that he prayed and gave thanks as he did aforetime. What is this telling us about Daniel and about his prayer life? It tells us that when Daniel was under stress and strain and in the midst of a trap, he had been in, literally legally entrapped. Legal entrapment. 
Daniel, as far as we can tell, did not make that the focus of his prayer time. His prayer time was as it was before. So here's the piece of advice we can derive from that. And this has to do with what you pray about and who you pray for. (laughs) And so here's the principle. Are you ready? This is a bit of a challenge. Are you ready? So here we go on point B. Pray twice as long for people whose needs are largely unconnected to you as compared to yourself and those closest to you. Pray twice as long for those whose needs are largely unconnected to you as compared to yourself and those closest to you. What is that? What's going on if you can do that? It's taking the focus off of yourself. It's shifting the focus off of your own concerns, your own needs. It's helping you to escape from self-pity, from a self-focus, and to compel yourself to shift your mind to the needs of others, whose needs are probably just as great as yours or greater. Put most of your energy in praying to, uh, for the sake of others that isn't necessarily going to give you any relief at all from your own problems. So instead of praying for all the problems in yourself and your children and your brothers and sisters and the people close to you, how much time do you spend praying for people who live far away that you really don't know very well? You've heard about their trouble. But whether they get their prayer answered wouldn't really affect your life, would it? Because they're far away. You've only met them once or twice. Sure, you are concerned for them, but not like you're concerned for yourself and those in your immediate family. Well, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge in prayer to keep prayer from becoming self-focused. Self-focused. But I think Daniel was able to do that. And Daniel was a man of great faith. Now, continuing on, as we wrap things up and we're continuing to try to be very practical here. This should become of no surprise. Item C. Speak uplifting, grateful, and complimentary words to everyone you encounter. But here's the key. It doesn't matter how you feel. Choose to say something uplifting. It doesn't matter how you feel. Choose to say something uplifting to that person. Choose to be encouraging. I'm not saying you have to lie. I'm not saying you have to fib. I'm not saying that you have to be a glib. I'm not saying that if someone says, how's your day gone? You, you don't have to always say, terrific. But you don't need to talk about yourself. Shift the conversation to them. Say something encouraging and uplifting to them. Whether or not your day has been terrific or a lot less than terrific. Just shift the focus and say something kind, thoughtful, complimentary, positive, uplifting, encouraging, and grateful. That will brighten their day just a little bit. 
<clears throat> Gratefulness now that is not vocalized counts for little, perhaps nothing. Gratefulness that's not vocalized means very little. You have to vocalize your gratefulness. Finally, our last practical point can be taken from Hebrews chapter 13. All right, let me read for you Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Are you ready? Hebrews 13, 15 and 16, our final passage. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But notice what comes next. We're going to give the fruit of our lips, praise of thanksgiving to our Father in heaven. But verse 16, the verse that follows says, But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifice God is well pleased. To do good and to communicate, forget not. So the final piece of advice here is this. Do acts of service that provide no benefit to you whatsoever. An act of service that benefits you in no way whatsoever. Again, you're shifting the focus off of yourself, off of your own needs and your own troubles and your own worries and your own concerns. And you're helping and lifting, encouraging and blessing others, not simply by what you say, but also by what you do. So, in closing, remember that most of us, by our own nature, are not particularly grateful people. The question is, what can we do to change that? That is the question for all of us to reflect upon. So thank you for your patience and your time today. May God bless you. God help us all to be grateful people. Thank you.